This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, this one is too spoofy for me. Hello everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi retro review-y sort of show for Halloween in summer. Yes, spookiness, skeletons, ghosts, you know, uh, you know, things from beyond time and space all getting into our mind and spooking us up. I am Gap when I'm joined by the other voice you've been hearing who is my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi. And this week we watched a Halloween special, incidentally. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> despite it not being the right time of year for it for us but you know <laughs> well i don't know what the plan was because according to you know our lord and god savior wikipedia uh we this episode was filmed in a different production order but then was released later so that it could line up with halloween because of the spookiness but i don't know if it was intended originally as a halloween episode or if they just decided to release it as one and you know it's uh, it sort of fits a lot of the themes of Halloween. They also mentioned Halloween several times, and uh, and then they had it come out on the on 27th of October in 1967. Yes, with the tricking and the treating and the black cats and whatnot. Yeah, you know, black cats and spooky castles and Spock not getting in it. <laughs> <laughs> this week we watched Star Trek original series Cat's Paw. Yeah. Which is a word, apparently. So it means like uh, getting somebody else to like do stuff for you, I guess. Yeah, something along those lines. I didn't know that. We had to look it up. It's like they, I thought it was just a reference to there being a cat. Yes, but I guess it's like cats are like like play with their their food, and so they're like, you know, knocking over glasses and like, hey, pick that up for me. <laughs> yeah, it's just like a cat. <laughs> <laughs> this episode was written by Robert Block, who we've had before in What Are Little Girls Made Of? Oh, oh no. Hmm. <laughs> but this one is probably a lot closer to some of his writing, being that he was sort of a disciple of H.P. Lovecraft and took a lot of inspiration from that genre of kind of galactic horror. Yes, uh, this is our uh, second sort of galactic horror of some sorts episode in a row, too. We get galactic horrors. The last one was more of a physical galactic horror. Mm -hmm. The people were afraid of Cold War stuff. This is more of a psychological galactic horror. There's even mentioned the like old ones, I think, at one point. <laughs> yes, the old ones. And there's little tentacles. There's tentacles. Yep. So yeah, the Lovecraft influence is coming in. It's a pity that they did not use them for anything. Yes. So that's getting ahead of myself. <laughs> <laughs> we have two guest stars this week Annette Boyer as Sylvia and Theo Marcos as Korob and I believe both of them were on Hogan's Heroes yes they were on several things both of them have just been uh, character actors and guest stars from the time period but nothing that anyone probably specifically remembers them for overall and uh, Miss Bauer was uh, in Get Smart for instance and uh um, a bunch of shows I don't remember or recognize. Hawaii Five O, like the old school one. Um, yeah, <laughs> just sort of random guest stars everywhere. Yeah, nothing that I would have seen. Uh, nothing that would have stuck that much. But they were working. They were doing a lot. Apparently, uh, Theo Marcos was came from a bit of a Shakespearean background. 
and did some stage acting. This makes sense for Korob or Korob. It's a very dumb name. It's a, it's a very uh, dumb name, but it is very Shakespearean sort of personality to him. And also because this was filmed out of production order, this was supposed to be the first time we meet Chekhov, which is why they kind of make fun of him a lot. And he has like a line in here that I didn't add because the ship stuff is very incidental about him not being green and knowing what he's doing. I also noticed that his hair looks kind of funky. Yeah, they had him in s such a bad wig. Yeah, it's like his, his wig's like just too big for him. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what was going on with the costuming, but he's wearing like an obviously just bad Beatles wig. <laughs> we have to exploit people liking the Beatles. Quick, <laughs> tosses on your head. <laughs> There's some interesting stuff in here, like incidentally. It's kind of a really, really scattered, badly done episode. It feels like one of the ones that's like two episodes that have been sort of grafted onto each other. Maybe even a third one in there, sort of. Yeah, a little. These ones are so hard to write because you just you can't force the narrative structure into something that makes sense. Like, well, we're kind of doing this thing, and then everything kind of changes gears, and suddenly we're in a, this other dis different situation. Yeah, I have a thing at the end, but they literally set up a thing of like, here's a problem. The ship's been trying to solve it for like 30 minutes. And then they almost have it, and then it's just taken care of elsewhere off screen. Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah, that whole thing that everyone was worried about. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, just in the next <laughs> scene. Which I guess sometimes just kind of happens in life, but it doesn't make for a good story. <laughs> no. Oh, well, explaining this to people is the monumental task for which we have set ourselves. So. All right. Let's start at the beginning, then. Kirk lost an away team. Whoops. I guess we weren't at the beginning. We missed a whole scene. <laughs> yes. Scotty, Sulu, and some dude are missing, and they have not checked in in their exploration of some random alien planet that they happen to be exploring, I guess. We get no backstory for this. Yeah, I have no idea why they're here. They're just sort of there. <laughs> Other guy contacts the ship and requests that he be beamed up alone and refuses to answer any questions. They beam him up, and he immediately falls down dead. Oh no, Jackson! He's dead! This guy I care about so much. But then, being dead, he gets very talkative and tells Kirk that the ship is cursed and they should leave. Oh no, uh, we have to leave. Otherwise bad stuff will happen. Wait, wait, wait curses? This is a science fiction show. <laughs> not anymore, it's not. <laughs> of course, this threat to his entire crew and losing two senior staff members means Kirk wants to beam down with every other senior staff member. Yep. <laughs> Yes, you do. So, Kirk is joined by Spock and McCoy to look for Sulu and Scotty. So we basically have every named character down here. Mm-hmm. Other than the checkout, but, we, you know, we just met him in filming order. So Yeah, and Ahura's <laughs> only left the ship, like, twice. Uh, there is DeSal, who's left in charge of the bridge. Uh, we have seen him a couple times, but this is the last time he shows up, so we kind of don't have to care. Good. Yeah, he's around. Though, he's, like, the assistant chief engineer, they said. And yeah. so that's the order of command progression here, apparently, is captain, first officer, security officer, chief engineer, assistant chief engineer. And sometimes other people show up, too. But, you know, this is how it usually goes, I guess. It's the Star Trek command structure of highest ranking officer who happens to be near the bridge at the time. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I think that's the correct answer. <laughs> 
Though they all beam down, the Enterprise can only detect Kirk and the other away members and nothing else on the entire planet. But then as soon as they report that, the communications get cut off, leaving Kirk and the team stranded. Oh no! All of a sudden, the away team is in an amateur production of Macbeth with three floating witch heads appearing. Yeah, so they're all like, woo, and saying some stuff that I could barely make out. Woo! They're wailing and... And things. the transcript for this is just hilarious, because which one, Captain Kirk? Which two, Captain Kirk? Which three, Captain Kirk? <laughs> Basically, they tell Kirk to turn back. Go away, get off our lawn. Then there's see-through heads, too. So they're not only are they witches, they're ghosts. They're witch ghosts. Yeah, witch ghosts. You know, it's, everything's more dangerous when it's also a ghost. Kirk asks for a report, and Kirk tells him that this was very bad poetry. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> but also that the witches were not real. Go figure. <laughs> oh, you mean that thing that looked like an obvious illusion was not real? Oh, imagine that. <laughs> Tom has detected life forms a few hundred meters away, where they see a big old castle. Ooh, spooky. They enter the big old castle and are immediately accosted by a black cat who spits at them, and they follow this cat further inside as Kirk remarks that it's almost as if someone is playing a trick-or-treat on them, a reference that, of course, Spock is confused by. Well, I guess they are kind of trick-or-treating in a way. They are just kind of jumping to that trick part where they do the breaking and entering. Back on the ship, Chekhov has now lost the away team, with them all disappearing off of scanners, which is just like what happened to the last away team. <laughs> Maybe beaming down was just a terrible idea. Maybe we should get like a shuttle or something like that. Something. Maybe they shouldn't explore alien weird planets for no apparent reason. And then we even find out later like people have passed through the system and charted it before. So why are they here? No idea. They never explain it in any way. It's one of the numerous things that we are left to wonder. Yes. The away team continues to follow this black cat down castle hallways until the floor gives way, dumping them into a room below and knocking them out. They should look for tra uh, traps, you know. They don't, but I guess then again, they probably don't have a, a rogue in their party, so any of this is inevitably going to happen. That's just bad DMing if you punish someone for not saying I look for traps in every single hallway. It's just boring. You need your passive, passive trap perception. Exactly, and I guess the the GM, you know, just didn't. Didn't even think that'd be like you know a good method of running things here. Again, they wake up chained to a dungeon wall, which Kirk mentions seems like a human nightmare, as if someone knows what the people are instinctively afraid of, which would be cats, skeletons, and dungeons, I guess. What else are we uh, all, all all afraid of here? Um, I'm drowning, so uh, are we gonna get thrown in a pool? That's that's um, that's unbreakable. Oh, okay. <laughs> Before he can finish his thoughts, Sulu and Scotty appear, all kind of zombified. Are they on drugs? McCoy, are they on drugs? Yes. <laughs> they release Kirk with a comically large key ring that doesn't actually fit their shackles at all. Sulu just holds up a key and does the, like, I'm going to turn this somewhere near your wrist to unlock your, <laughs> oh. your bracelets. It's actually uh, the the Millennium Key. They're uh, unlocking the metal powers of the the, the subconscious and the uh, and, and the inner soul. <laughs> Yu-Gi-Oh! <laughs> they take them to an opulently decorated room with a bald man sitting on a raised throne. Yeah. Well, there, there was a little bit of a uh, scuffle here, uh, right? A tiny bit, sort of like, but not much of yeah. one. But they're just really there, yeah. Yeah, he knocks into one of them and they threaten him and they cooperate. 
This man is Korob, and he is apparently in charge. Yes, and he's on a opulent throne in this, this dining room of some sort hall. Kirk starts questioning him about why any of this, and why have they killed one of his people. He is entirely evasive, and also keeps talking to his black cat. Hmm, it seems he has this some, some sort of special relationship with his kitty. The only thing that we actually learn from this exchange is that he and his people are not native to this planet, but they are also nonplussed that Kirk insists on bugging them. So what is their plan? What is their game? Why all of this? But Korob's like, nah. Yep, their plan is to have dinner because the cat reminds him that he's being an inattentive host and he takes them all over to eat and he uses a magic wand to sort of make dinner stuff. Wait, we are in a D&D &D game here. This guy's a wizard. This is also exactly what happened when they met uh, the Squire of Gothos there, like to the letter. Wait a moment, are you related to this Trelane guy? We met him a while back. Um, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> I had to, I couldn't have a good way to fit this in, but Karab like, tells Spock that he has a very black and white logical attitude. McCoy says that Spock doesn't know what trick or treat is, and this is the best line in the entire thing. As Karab says, I do not understand that reference, therefore it is of no importance. Yes. <laughs> so this whole theme thing we're doing, yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Though it's like the logical counterpoint. This needs to be memed more because it's the logical counterpoint to the Captain America. I understood that reference. Yep. <laughs> he creates a large feast thing with his wand and insists that they all eat. And then he tries to bribe them with a plate full of precious stones. Kirk tells him that the stones are worthless. And crowd goes, oh, really? I must have misread something. Hmm. Well, that's what you get when you're, you're reading off of out, uh, outdated Wikipedia articles, man. Come on. It is tells them that this was all a test of their character as a species, I guess. He wanted them down there. Yeah. So all the threats and things were to see if they would come down there, and the bribes were to see if they would leave if being bribed. But it was all my master plan all along. Yes, all along. Don't yeah, it wasn't just me making it up as I go along. Don't mind me and how stupid this sounds. <laughs> the cat yeah, the, leaves, the, and a woman yeah, the, enters. I, I think the cat's just like, I, I'm done with this, I'm out. Yes. And then and then suspiciously, yeah, there's suddenly a lady there. This woman is introduced as Karab's colleague, Sylvia. So, one is a weird alien name, and one's just some lady. She explains that they are easily able to probe and control human minds with their great mental powers. Yeah, as you do. Like, everyone else we meet in this galaxy seems to be able to do. <laughs> Basically, yeah. <laughs> Where she is explaining, Kirk grabs a phaser from Scotty, but Sylvia is not impressed at all, and she produces a metal model of the Enterprise, explaining that she knows something called sympathetic magic, which is how she killed the crew member earlier. So she can create images of things and believe them to be the real thing and then do things to the images, and that happens to the real thing. This is an actual, like, system of magic. You know, uh... The, the sort of thing that people think about uh, most commonly with you know, this sort of thing is like voodoo. Uh, like, you know, you got your voodoo dolls, and you do something to the doll, and suddenly, yeah, some, some, some craziness happens to the person in real life. At least that's supposedly how it works. It's probably the most well-known form, but this is a common mythologic trope that keeps popping up over and over in all kinds of storylines. They do it a lot. So she takes the little model and puts it over a candle and then tells 
Kirk to contact the ship, and they say, hey, it's getting really hot up here for some reason. It's getting hot in here, so take off all your shields. <laughs> Kirk admits defeat and gives up his weapon. Kurov is very curious about Kirk and begins to explain how they can alter the molecular structures of things and wants to know about human science and stuff, but Sylvia gets all impatient and interrupts him. So these uh, aliens apparently have some sort of, I don't know, um, um, uh, like something that can rec rep uh, replicate things, and they're able to create this entire castle like some sort of holographic system, like a, maybe a deck thing here. This is very interesting stuff. Yeah, they are they are related to Trelane, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> so Karab seems to be wanting some sort of amicable exchange of information to learn about each other, but Sylvia doesn't like that and is being weird and weird. <laughs> no other motivation. They trap the Enterprise in an impenetrable force field, and the crew is sent back to their cell, except McCoy, who Sylvia wants to do something to. Well, um, McCoy is the uh, the most uh, irritable of the lot, so getting him, you know, you know, taken care of might be the, the first wise move. The Enterprise crew decides to try to force their way through the force field thing uh, with a very odd turn of phrase. Something about, you know, making dents in it and electromagnetics. Well, what I was thinking about was, I bet you credits to navy beans we can put a dent in it. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot about that bit. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. It's like dollars to donuts, but they have credits and haven't, then the donut has gone extinct, I guess. Hmm. I guess this is the future. Hmm. Well, that means we could reintroduce donuts and we could save the day. Yes, they need the donut. The donut <laughs> would save all. They would just eat sticky goodness and go to sleep, I guess. <laughs> Mmm, donuts. Kirk and Spock are back tied up in their cell, and they discuss the psychological idea of the racial subconscious. I have a feeling we're going to talk about this later. Yes. It's actually uh, <laughs> more accurately known as the collective unconscious. But, you know, if you want to look it up, that's an easier term to look for. Yes. Yeah, go ahead and do that now, if you like. You'll be right prepared for the uh, conversation later. <laughs> Maybe Korob and Sylvia can read their minds, but they tried to read their conscious mind and missed. So you're, what you're saying is they're sloppy. Yes. They read their unconscious minds and then created this, you know, weird castle thing that humans so, are scared of. Well, maybe they only read one of their minds, and whoever this, this that particular person was, they really are in, like, spooky castles and, like, skeletons and witches and ghosts and things like that. And, oh, yeah, they didn't bother with the rest of them, because, like, oh, all these human-type creatures, they're all the same, right? Yeah, the one guy that they killed is a goth. Yeah. <laughs> Jackson, our goth crew member's dead! Oh no! <laughs> Kirk dislikes that these, like, unsettlingly alien beings are showing such a weird interest in them. Because, you know, that could be bad, I guess, if he says so. Scotty, Sulu, and now McCoy all enter in their controlled zombified state to collect Kirk this time. Korob and Sylvia are arguing because apparently... She has kind of become too intrigued with their new life and has given up their mission and morals as a people that we don't know or don't know what they were supposed to be doing or anything, but she's become off mission, according to Korob, and that's bad. She wants to do her own thing. She wants to be someone who enjoys their new existence, that enjoys being this, this, this magical woman, I guess. Kirk enters. Sylvia wants to speak with him alone as she explains that where she comes from, there is no sensation. But now she has become a woman and she needs to explore their way of life and use his knowledge. 
Kirk gets all flirty-flirty Kirk face at her, and she finds it hard to dispose of Kirk for some woman reasons, I guess. And Kirk does his kissy thing, but then Sylvia realizes, like, oh, you don't like me, you're manipulating me, and gets really mad and sends him back to his cell, but not before doing a weird quick-change outfit thing that has no purpose, where she wears a weird 70s jumpsuit-looking thing, and then... It explains about something called a transmuter that they use to change things around. It's a very convoluted backstory exposition dump with some quick changes, and it's very unsettling. And it's all taking place while they're, you know, Kirk's trying to make out with her. Yeah, it's don't watch that bit. The Enterprise is making progress in penetrating the force field. But it was unnecessary because Korob just comes into the cell, goes, hey, I put the force field down. They would have broken through it in a minute anyway, though. Yeah, so, yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> He's letting them go and he wants to take them back to their ship. Korg is upset with Sylvia's obsession and thinks that what she's doing is wrong and dangerous. But when they try to escape the castle, they're confronted by Sylvia as a giant black cat. Not like, you know, like a tiger cat, but like just a house cat. That's yeah, a house cat that is big. Yes. <laughs> it's mostly shown in shadow except for one scene where they put the cat in a tiny model hallway. And it's kind of adorable. <laughs> they retreat back to the hole that they fell through originally, and Korob is crushed by the door trying to hold back Sylvia. Kirk grabs his wand and runs away. Steal the wizard's w wand and leaving him to die? Jeepers, guys, you are terrible at this whole party unity thing. Kirk and Spock are attacked by McCoy, Scotty, and Sulu, but this does basically nothing because they knock them all out immediately. Sylvia reappears, and this time Kirk confronts her with the magic wand, and she turns back into a normal person, and he's realized that this thing is their powerful transmuter doohickey. Surprise, you have the power to fix everything in your hand if you just know to how to fi uh, uh, make use of it. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't, so... Yeah. She transports them back to the main <laughs> hall where she tries to make the case that this transmuter is like an amplifier that can do stuff with their minds and thoughts. And if she can teach him how to use it, then he can use his human awesomeness to do really awesome things. But he's like, I hate you. You're not really a woman and you tricked me. And he smashes the thing and everything disappears. Well, I guess that was the hall that controls the whole time. Everything's back to normal, except Korob and Sylvia are now two small, fuzzy, tentacly-looking critters. Yeah, I, I, when I first saw them on screen, like, they're adorable. They are adorable. They're very t small. They're so small, and they have tentacles, and they're fuzzies, little fuzzballs. Fuzzy fuzzballs. They're like... Sort of like plants, like dandelions, but they're also like almost made out of yard. It's kind of, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's just hard to describe. Spock wants to preserve them for study, but Korob and Sylvia die and then turn to smoke. And then that's about it. McCoy goes, that was all an illusion. And Kurt goes, nope, somebody died. And then they beam back up to their ship and leave. Like, well, I guess, yeah, we're just going to leave them there. Okay. We're not going to like try to take samples and try to figure out where these creatures come from, but you know, whatever. That was bad. Yeah. <laughs> it had a few good moments, but altogether it's just like, here are some random things that are kind of just happening. And it's, it was more ambiance than like substance, like by, by far. Yeah. It didn't really have any particular messaging in there. And the messages that you get out of it are very horrible. Yeah. 
<laughs> There's a particular through line that they have with Sylvia as the villain. The like she as a woman is getting too obsessed with feelings and sensations that she can't handle and that's making her do evil things to pursue feelings and sensations. Mm, yeah, that seems like a terrible message to me. And she has to be stopped by the man who can control his desire to have this kind of power. And considering this is happening during the 60s sexual revolution with the uh, with some of the you know more sex positive feminism stuff getting in there is kind of a problem it's uh very much a um oh you know the, these these ladies be out of control yuck yuck yeah a little bit <laughs> and her little quick change act where she just turns changes into like several versions of sexy outfit you know the there is a, sort of the trope of the, the the temptress uh but uh it's not usually used in a very sensible fashions no <laughs> and definitely not here <laughs> if we're gonna talk tropes we can talk collective unconscious. All right, yeah, we mentioned it a few times there. Uh, so uh, tell us about some Jung here, eh? Yes, this is a theory put forth by Carl Jung, who was a student and contemporary of Sigmund Freud. So some back-in-the-day stuff. Yes, some back-in-the-day. You had Freudian psychology, which dealt with a lot of unconscious mind stuff, dream, dream interpretation stuff. Um, Freud got into that psychosexual stuff that everyone makes fun of him for. Uh, Jung split off, and Jungian psychology was was also psych was also sort of uh, unconscious focused, and that's where his collective unconscious ideal came from. But people have an idea of what the collective unconscious is that is probably wrong, because Jung himself said that the collective unconscious is probably his most widely misunderstood theory. You know, the, uh, when you sort of first hear about it, it's like, this is like some sort of psychic connection? What's going on there? Yeah, is it a telepathy thing? Is it a psychic connection? Is it... It's even kind of been brought up... Uh, Kind of like they do in this episode, that like, well, everyone just has like, you know, these things that everyone is afraid of, like, you know, spiders and, and cats and whatnot. And that's no. <laughs> but, but like cats, I think they're adorable. Yeah, the fact that like a lot of people find something creepy is not really the the idea. It's basically i have this this quote here which i'll just i'll just read the quote that he said and then try to summarize uh so according to young he has a quote from a talk that he did so it says my thesis then is as follows in addition to our immediate consciousness which is of a thoroughly personal nature in which we believe to be the only empirical psyche even if we take on the personal unconscious as an appendix there exists a second psychic system of a collective, universal, and impersonal nature which is identical in all individuals. This collective unconscious does not develop individually but is inherited. It consists of pre-existent forms, the archetypes, which can only become conscious secondarily and which give definite form to certain psychic contents. So in other words, it's sort of like, well, I have the mechanisms uh of being able to sneeze in my physical body and thus at some point when the conditions are right i am going to sneeze similarly the basic idea that you can think of this especially putting into a modern context 
everyone's brain is basically made the same way. But what if mine has more sprinkles? So, like, stuff will affect your brain, your individual experiences, the way you were raised, the things you interact with, some random variation will happen that make you an individual. But the basic, you know, structure of someone's brain is identical in every individual because brains are just the same, which means the way that people tend to think about certain things will be very similar because they're working under the same architecture. It's, uh... Yeah, the rules are the same, even if the uh, how you apply them is different. And something that I think people will be more familiar with as it applies to this sort of idea would be the monomyth idea of Joseph Campbell's hero journey. The hero journey strikes again! Which he detailed in his book, A Hero with a Thousand Faces, which I think a lot of people are becoming familiar with. The hero's journey stuff is becoming very talked about nowadays. Mm -hmm. So it's probably a good starting point, but... So the, one of the things in this quote that was mentioned is something called archetypes, which in Jungian psychology are just uh, sort of manifestations of general ideas. Like, uh, you know, the, like the goddess or the, uh, the old hermit and things like that. Yeah, which are like two on the list here of like the great mother, which is a mothering, nurturing sort of figure that shows up in a lot of mythology. The great goddess, the like mother figure, the caring grandmother figure, etc. Yeah, some sort of a uh, female caregiver. Or the wise old man. You also, uh, interesting, get the anima and animus from this concept, which is the kind of male and female parts of the of the uh, collective unconscious mind uh, you know it's it's, it's very uh, categorical as, as far as these sort of uh, things go and uh, these are to a certain degree they're they're broad enough that a lot of things can be sort of uh tossed to the various bins here to sort of you know you know uh, categorize stuff so yeah so 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 it's, so it's very 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 easy to expand this to a lot of different sort of concepts and conversations which is kind of the point I don't, I don't know if this is an actual criticism that I have of the theory or not. I'm still kind of thinking through the thing. I get to this idea with something like this and something like the hero's journey concept, which is basically if you simplify down anything enough, it will eventually become similar. It's like, well, okay, here's a star and here's my, 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 my car here. All right, we're going to break this down. Okay, they, they both have something that's hot inside, yes. So that's an important thing. Yeah, and this will explain everything about both of these. Well, not everything, but it's like if you take <laughs> it down, they're both, you know, objects that exist. So there's one. They both have hot things. They're both made of atoms. They both, you know, whatever. But, but they, they don't they don't inform much about the structure beyond that. But by the same token, the refutation of the creative un of the collective unconscious kind of creates a point in favor of the collective unconscious in that if a human simplifies down an object they will come to something that humans can recognize as similar which means we all have kind of a collective version of simplifying things into understanding here's maybe sort of a question on this then is that a thing that is a a quality about humanity that is you know just sort of an accident a or is this something that actually is very useful for say development of language well, it would be useful for development of language, but I think there's, it depends on what you mean by accident, because largely all things that happen could be called accidents. Yes. <laughs> Happy little accidents. <laughs> well, I have kind of long held this idea that the, the idea that we have of humans 
as becoming intelligent and intelligence is like the main thing that makes humans special and you know that it being kind of the the overriding through line of our evolution um it it seems to me that you could define intelligence as secondary to socialization because the main sort of evolutionary advantage that humans have had is our ability to socialize and form groups and be a very, very social species. So, uh, you know, we, we might, might have these tools uh, using hands, but if we can use tools in a coordinated fashion, that makes us even more powerful. And then the sort of intelligence thing that we all think of would be secondary to that, because the more complicated your social structure becomes, the more kind of intelligence that you need to deal with it. Sort of, you know, everything else, you know, that comes with intelligence along with is just kind of a byproduct. Which is something you can look at in other species, like uh, corvids are an incredibly intelligent animal and very social. Same with uh, parrots. You know, basically any animal that has a complicated family social structure shows elements of language and deductive reasoning, and they are discovering an innate sense of fairness in a lot of species. So, uh, yeah, this might have some, uh, you know, implications that if we ever encountered aliens in real life... That they might imply that they, by default they have a you know complicated social structure. Possibly, probably, but whether or not that social structure could be considered self-similar to ours is another question because you could sure. take the basic idea of the collective unconscious in that you're you know everyone's mind formed in a similar way, which means everyone's mind can be expected to act in a similar way. All life on Earth evolved under the same structure to deal with the same problems, so you could expect that similar solutions to those problems would be self-similar. I was actually having a conversation about some of this uh, the other day with a friend of mine. Uh, you know, you know, basically we were, you know, as we sometimes do, uh, making fun of you know, the folks like you know, that are uh, super pro, like you know, ethno state stuff, and they're like. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to have our way of life in this country and you can have yours over there. And, yeah, of course, there's all the violence and, you know, at the cleansing to get to that point, which is also terrible. Uh, but, you know, the it, it sort of ignores the, this, this similarity between, you know, different types of people that, you know, people in, you know, it, from one you know corner of the world can get to the point where, you know, as far as, you know, their, their own learning and their integration with another society to be, you know, able to operate perfectly fine in another. So it sort of suggests that they that we're not so different, you and I. Well, that seems to be the general through line of things here. Yes, we're not so different. <laughs> I've been listening to this very interesting kind of, this interesting podcast that's kind of been going through the history of that sort of thing. It said kind of prior to the uh, six, 15, 1600s, uh, people had no actual concept of racial divisions and everyone would define themselves by basically where they were from so the greeks the greeks didn't have a concept of being racially greek they were like someone from greece and someone from a greek culture it's like i'm from athens and you're you're from uh, thermopylae and that's the main differences even though we're neighbors and yeah well of course but of it. course you know <laughs> Someone from Greece was, of course, better than someone from not Greece because Greece was a superior climate and culture for people to you know, grow up in and therefore created superior people. Sort of, uh, you know, you know, when, you know, a fer you know, a fertile land for fertile crops sort of thinking, I guess. Basically, yeah. But, but by that token, it was sort of a, you know, if you took someone from you know, Ethiopia, who they had regular contact with from Greece, and you raised them in 
Greece, they would probably turn out, you know, like a Greek. Which is interesting because that takes it very much on the nurture side of your nature nurture arguments. Yes. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, to, I guess in some degree, the uh, collective unconscious is more of a nature sort of uh, end of things. So it's sort of kind of working in conjunction then? Would you sort of combine these two concepts? <laughs> in a way, yes. It's just that um, people are going to experience things in a similar way. It's actually the very basis of all psychology mm -hmm. if you assumed that everyone's mind was 100 percent individual and had 100 percent individual reactions to situations you could not have psychology as a concept because you could not look at a human mind and say well it's doing this which means we can make these assumptions about people and how the mind works because everyone's mind would be 100 percent unique without this idea yeah, everyone's decision making would be basically the same as rolling dice you you know, you would be unable to uh, you know uh, predict the outcomes uh, when the especially if these there's the number of choices is basically unlimited. And there was this interesting there was this article I haven't read I was having a discussion with someone who had read this article so I'm getting kind of secondary information on this just to be clear for everyone. But there was this idea talking about the kind of hero's journey thing as not being particularly a a like critique of storytelling tropes or like all stories and all things you know, fall into this hero's journey idea but more in the thesis of the hero's journey tells you about you know an individual internal journey they were kind of comparing it to something like a psychosis or something in that article i believe but it's kind of this like journey to understand something about yourself which then changes the reality Sort of, uh, you know, your response to the stimuli external and how you sort of internalize it. Because there has been somewhat of a critique of the hero's journey idea as it relates to, you know, this is the core of all narrative fiction or all storytelling in that it only particularly works with a certain type of Western linear storytelling tradition. If you change up the, the basic format, it does kind of make that, you know, the, the hero's journey sort of progression a little more tricksy. Yeah, there are there are other storytelling forms which I'm not as familiar with because we're not talking about them very much. But uh, the Western storytelling is a very narrative, linear arc. But there are other storytelling traditions that focus so much on the individual moral. They're not exactly a linear arc. They're a you know series of things that may or may not happen linearly but they each reinforce the general premise of the moral instead of being an overall overarching narrative uh, i've actually uh, tried to write something along that sort of lines uh, on occasion uh it's, it's still very early early drafts of course but um the i, I have this idea for a, a story which is the the current working title is called tale of stars uh and it is one of those sort of story within a story within a story sort of deals and the, the sort of the bottom most deep level story is actually a, a, a collection of fables that maybe have a couple recurring characters, but are each individually sort of, you know, a, a disconnected story from the larger sort of, you know, thing that's going on. And each is trying to build up a concept, an idea and that when you sort of step back and take a look at them as a whole, will sort of give you a, a more, uh, you know, complicated view of uh, uh of the sort of the lesson the world uh and i sort of was inspired by uh some other uh, uh things i've read uh for instance uh, i think it's uh, the, the conference of the birds 
which is a a uh, a text uh, from it from you know through the Islamic traditions of the Sufi uh, you know uh, schools of thought, uh, which is which is a tale of a bunch of birds show up and they like tell some stories and things like that, and that sort of helps you sort of get a better impression of what they're trying to get across in the in the you know in the quote narrative. Though it's not a narrative in our sort of more Western uh, tradition. Not familiar with that one. That sounds interesting. Yes. <laughs> Uh, I have a copy of somewhere. It's been years since I've read it, so <laughs> I'm probably misinterpreting some some parts of it still. So, well, that's kind of interesting. Thinking about the collective unconscious and hero's journey stuff with this is they didn't really do any of it. Yep, <laughs> they don't really do much of it, and I guess that is somewhat a critique of general storytelling in this era of television and later. In that, um, you start with the you know the mundane world thing as you do in the hero's journey tropes and then they go into the other world thing which in this case would be a the illusionary thing and then they get back to the mundane world but they haven't learned anything here are some things that happened <laughs> yeah they kind of skip the moral development side of things in this episode particularly yeah well, that's sort of a side effect though of the episodic structure of the series but yeah like we can't really evolve beyond a certain point and most of that evolution comes in the actors getting better at playing their parts. So, and it's hard to tell. I was I keep coming to the end of this episode, and I haven't been able to come up with a very good idea for it because the end of it kind of comes out of nowhere. Just gonna crash the thing. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a better alien trope than anything else. You get these like yes, truly alien beings that we can't understand and look nothing. It's just weird. They just show up at the end, but then die. And I feel like there's something in there of them not being able to survive outside of their created world. Yeah, it's sort of like they're using the projected bodies and things like that as sort of like vessels, spaceships almost. Spacesuits. Here are human suits. Hmm. Creepy. <laughs> yeah, so there's something there. Are they just like, you know, invaders that can't live in our ideals? I mean, there could be that. They're, they're kind of like Russian spies that are taking on the guise of oh yeah i didn't think of it from the russian spy angle that makes a lot more sense than other things i was thinking about the russian spies <laughs> that are coming into our way of life and getting tempted by it until it destroys them because they can't gel it with their horrible communist ideas Price. <laughs> i guess that is that isn't an uncommon trope from this time period of the like hardcore communists coming over here and realizing how great the the decadent capitalist lifestyle is and being able to not not go back and being yeah, corrupted by it yeah that particular uh trope does show up uh, you know uh, many times before and after that uh you know post cold war it's evolved into you know you know uh, you know other forms like like oh here is you know the the islamic terrorist who's now living it up in the u.s and like yeah i don't really want to go do the thing because i now got like a mortgage <laughs> yeah the wonderfulness of living in our system will destroy even the most hardened ideology <laughs> Which, uh, I, I, you know it just kind of humorous at a certain level because it sort of simplifies and makes so many assumptions about you know how people work though you get into an interesting thing like i guess you're supposed to have oh yeah it also gets into some moralizing about how our system tempts people 
with material things and with like the the sensations and whatnot and it takes your good christian protestant ideals to not fall into that yes you know we're not going to accept your bribes and uh yeah we're gonna pretend like we're making out with you but we're not gonna really feel it and because we're all trying to get you to you know you know you know fall victim to the temptations of the flesh but one of them who has not been raised right you know can't take it it's just too much there's too much decadence and awesomeness for them to handle but then when you take it away they literally wither to nothing and they evaporate in fact it seems like yeah i was thinking about it in the subconscious kind of way of being too attached to your fantasies but it makes a lot more sense if it's kind of just a if it's a treatise on decadence and hedonism spooky hedonism yeah spooky spooky <laughs> hedonism which i guess is, is a thing you know we already mentioned goths a few times so yeah i was i was watching a uh, a show where elvira guest starred as something yesterday so it's been around <laughs> and that's very much uh you know uh, gothic hedonism there <laughs> that's sort of that's her sort of her aesthetic there that sounds like a video essay elvira the gothic hedonist <laughs> want me to talk about uh, macbeth for a little bit sure all right so we got you know early on that and this kind of got me uh, you know uh thinking about this but um you know, speaking of storytelling we got three witches who show up and they're, they're all spooky and given all sorts of you know uh, beware here's some stuff that's will happen if you keep going on this path stuff and that's very much in the uh, the uh, tradition of the, the weird sisters which uh, is most famous from um uh, you know, the Scottish play of Macbeth, uh, where they run into these these three ladies and they like give some prophecies and it's all like spooky, uh, you know, stuff. And like, hmm, well, I guess, I guess, I guess, I could be king, and and then some bad stuff will happen, I guess. So, uh, I could be king. So, hooray! <laughs> also, you get the conniving woman from that as well, with Lady oh. Macbeth. True, true. Oh yeah, very much uh, fits uh, Sylvia there. She has desires wants and ambitions that go beyond what uh, you know her counterpart is necessarily happy with and so you know you know Korob's like well i'm i'm still sort of on this plan here but wow you're kind of going off onto who knows what now hmm do i stab somebody still are we gonna stab somebody they don't stab anyone <laughs> particularly that was the other one <laughs> yes <laughs> they really love their shakespearean stuff in these because yes. this is this there's definitely there's too many Macbeth references in this there's Macbeth references in the other one with with King the executioner there I'm forgetting the thing yes uh you know, the, the consciousness of the king yeah the contents of the king which itself was a was a uh, Hamlet quote so they're trying to do Shakespeare badly <laughs> Which, you know, that's about most how most people do Shakespeare, honestly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> a, a quick aside, uh, speaking of the Scottish play, um, uh, when I was in uh, high school, we actually went to a stage production put on by one of the, uh, you know, uh, uh, one of the regional universities. Uh, and it was one of the, I guess, most spectacular uh, stage productions I've seen. Not because not because there was like a big fancy set. It was actually very minimal, but just how like visceral and intense you know everyone involved was, uh, and also the copious amounts of fake blood was kind of intim intimidating. But <laughs> I was like, wow, am I scarred for life now? <laughs> Probably. It's okay. Now you can vent it on a podcast. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> Years later. <laughs> 
but um, yeah, and, and so I guess maybe that that uh, that uh, play uh, viewing of the play is one of the reasons it sort of you know the the whole, the whole uh, Macbeth has stuck a lot more solid in my in my brain than it might otherwise have done so, um, which is kind of interesting to me. So that's so when the, when the uh, the spooky late ghost ladies showed up, that was sort of very much a oh yeah, I'm having flashbacks now. <laughs> that's a very obvious reference. I've never actually seen Macbeth. I've mostly seen the comedies. Um, uh, I'm guessing you've not uh, read it as well. No. Um, well, if you ever, if you want me to, you know, uh, uh, poke my brain about it, it, you know, I'm a little rusty about the details, but you know, there's the whole, you know, you know, murdering, and there, there's, you know, prophecies and the, and the weird sisters, of course. <laughs> uh, but the weird, you know, the weird sisters also uh, are sort of when they're put in the play, also kind of references to several other things, both in like uh, you know Scottish myths, uh, Norse myths, uh, Greek myths with like the you know the, the three fates and things like that. You know, and uh, they're all sort of attached to this this notion of you know you know fixed destinies and things like that. Yes, I'm very familiar with the with the Terry Pratchett Discworld novel Weird Sisters, which is kind of Macbeth, but from the the perspective of the three witches. I, I think I might have heard about this, but I didn't remember it was uh, Pratchett. <laughs> yeah, it's very good. There's a cartoon. Excellent. <laughs> you know, I've I've seen a couple of the uh, live action. Uh, you know. Uh, productions of uh you know practice work but not the cartoons so the cartoons are very worth finding right, i'll have to look see if i can track those down especially if you've seen uh hogfather one indeed i have yeah because you get the origin story of death's granddaughter and uh there's two cartoons there's like weird sisters and soul music and soul music is the origin of death's granddaughter Apparently we just just do a Terry Pratchett podcast. I'm sure there's one of those. I should find it. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, sh- I should better get reading that. <laughs> uh, but that means we've definitely run out of things to talk about for this episode. Yeah, I guess we could. Uh, I don't know. Talk about cat's paws as, as a phrase, but I don't really feel like that. So, <laughs> oh, the only particular thing I was thinking of there is that uh, it draws another Macbeth parallel. Lady Macbeth literally using Macbeth as a cat's paw like Sylvia's using people as a cat's paw. Indeed. So yeah, there you go. Like you do the thing. I want to be queen. <laughs> but then she turns into a cat to play with Meow. people. <laughs> oh, I was so tempted to watch some cat videos before we recorded here, but <laughs> yeah, I was having some technical issues. So <laughs> Giant scary cat videos. <laughs> Meow. <laughs> All right, we're, we're hitting bottom here. I feel like it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show. Hey, everybody, we've tallied up all the scores and we have some winners for today's uh, extravaganza. Our first award is going to be the Halloween episode award, which goes to the writer Robert Block for going all in on the tropes of the spoopiness. What does he win, Kepwin? He wins more plastic spiderwebs and skulls and things. I, I have a feeling they just had some castle sets sitting around with as often as they go to castles, but this one was not really Halloweenified enough. Hmm, true, true, true. Just got a... Yeah, maybe they get some sort of, um, I don't know, a spiderweb projection cannon and uh, just sort of go to town on it. That'd be, that'd be fantastic. 
Our second award is the Visually Advanced Aliens Award, which goes to Corrup and Sylvia for basically having a holodeck and crappy mind-reading powers. Where do they win, Gepwin? Corrup and Sylvia win a vacation to somewhere that's not going to melt them. They seem like they were nice before they were taken on by the decadence of capitalism. Well, perhaps they'll uh, enjoy their, their stay on, um, I don't know, uh, a, a different planet. Maybe Venus. I was I didn't have anything good for that, so... <laughs> Our third award is the Cat Burglar Award for Kirk, Spock, and McCoy for breaking and entering into a spooky castle. Where do they win, Gepwin? Kirk, Spock, and McCoy win being burgled by a cat. Tables have turned. Hmm. Cats burglars engage in the cat burgles with a cat that is a burglar. Ho-ho. Our final award is the Cosmic Muppet Award, which also goes to Corop and Sylvia, because they, when their true identities are revealed, they're adorable uh, puppets, and they were puppets the whole time, I guess, and that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, they win Gepwin. Corop and Sylvia win Muppets in Space, which is, you know, the last of the Muppet movies, and it wasn't as good, and I don't know why they felt like they had to explain Gonzo, but Muppet movies are still better than most of these episodes. Hmm, that is quite true. Maybe we should do one of those at some point. Also, pigs in space! In space. <laughs> so that's all the awards I got for you today, Gepwin. And everybody else, hope you enjoyed the game show portion of the show. Thank you all for joining us, and we'll figure out if pigs in space counts enough as science fiction later on. <laughs> I hope you all enjoyed the galaxy's favorite game show! That segment is getting more silly the more we do it. Well, that's the point. People need yeah. a break from, from the horrible existential crisis of the world that we talk about through most of these episodes. True, true, true. I think that's it's it's good. Even you know, independent of how people, the listeners, feel about that section, it is good for us. And so I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've never gotten any complaints from the fourteen people who listen to this show. Hooray! <laughs> Next up, we have Mud is back. Perhaps he's being a little bit more Roman this time. Maybe. Maybe. I sort of remember this episode. I remember parts of it. I think I'm getting it mixed up with the with the evil female android bots from Austin Powers Some in sort my of head. Some bots, you say. Yeah. There's definitely fembots, and then I get confused of which bad 60s fembot trope we're using. There were a few of them, and they have slight variations. Yeah. Mud, of course, the favorite and possibly only reoccurring character in this show the guy with the mustache and the and the, and the slight baldingness i guess and the uh the the, the intense joviality while yeah. trying to screw everybody else over the, the good old slave trader that we didn't have any problems with from earlier he's back guys because everyone loves him so much this is the episode that i was getting confused by when we were doing mud's women a while ago and i thought there were robots because this is the one with the robots yes and everybody loves robots. Yeah, so I haven't seen it before, though we we did get the we got the writer of what are little girls made of, and now we're getting female robots again. I'm seeing some trends. Hmm. Yeah, I think they had sort of an obsession with attractive female robots. That's uh, some Stepford Wives stuff going on here, or is it? <laughs> well, we'll find out how Stepford Wives it gets next week on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow. 
let all the poison that lurks in the mud hatch out. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcasts, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Morris Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>